Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to another installment of the Comics Pals Book Club. This time, for your listening pleasure, we'll be tackling Jupiter's Legacy. Now, the Pals don't know this, but this is actually a Netflix-sponsored uh, episode. That's right, because we're tying it into the show. No, we're not actually. If you guys <laughs> want to go listen to that, we have a separate episode one review where you can listen to our thoughts on that. But hashtag not an ad, hashtag not an ad, but also hashtag maybe an ad because I have this note here from Netflix that says, oh, we want you to do one, uh, one impromptu bad Phil joke, uh, to start off the episode to promote the show. Wow, um, I feel like this is already that. Yeah. Um, don't yeah. guys don't tell Marco, but I actually wrote that note for him. <gasps> no, Probably I've been that. fooled. Oh, Phil, when did you start working at Netflix? Uh, uh, I lied, you know, like a liar. Okay, good. Bad joke. Check. Let's go. <laughs> and rolling right on. Um, so for Jupiter's Legacy, we're going to be reading the Jupiter's Legacy book plus Jupiter's Circle. Uh, online, you might find it all under the one Jupiter's Legacy banner broken out within like four volumes. A little bit confusing, but um, the way that I've structured the way that we'll be reading this is uh, volume one, or at least the way we'll be talking about this, is volume one for Jupiter's Legacy, numbers one through five. Then all of Jupiter's Circle, 1 through 12, and then finishing up with uh, Volume 2 of Jupiter's Legacy. This is how it was actually originally published, 2013 for Volume 1, 2015 uh, for all of Jupiter's Circle, and then 2016 wrapping up the entire arc. And did you guys know that in June we're actually going to get Requiem, which is going to be the fifth part of this? No, I, I did not. Nice. Excited for it. It's actually coming it out. Is, it is. It is actually coming out. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say it's very late. <laughs> yep. Uh, and the writer for this book, Mark Miller, uh, artist Frank Quietly, at least for Jupiter's Legacy in particular. We have Wilfredo Torres with help from David Gianfelico Felici, sorry, Chris Sprouse on Jupiter Circle, and across the board, Peter Doherty on letters with uh, Eve Svorkin helping out on uh, uh, colors. So uh, this is the first time I've ever read it. And um, I know we've briefly touched upon uh, your guys' history with the book prior. So uh, for this section, can you guys just briefly do it again? Um, you know, What have you guys had in terms of reading for Jupiter's Legacy? And then what are your first impressions about this book? No spoilers right now. Um, just like... How did you feel about uh, reading this book? Uh, we'll start with Kale. So I think my first exposure to this book was um, was actually Jupiter's Circle. It was the one, the the first volume of them back in the fifties. Uh, so it did absolutely nothing for me. <laughs> I did not care about these characters at all. Uh, but reading it this time and reading it, I, don't, I still don't think I read it in the right order based on what you just said, but I cared about it a lot more reading <laughs> Jupiter's Legacy and then Jupiter's Circle. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah, so I really, really enjoyed it this time. So much so that I am going to push through and watch the show uh, oh. to see if I actually like it. Cool. Uh, anybody else just jump in? Yeah, I I read Jupiter's Legacy or yeah, Jupiter's Legacy. Um I think I read like the first few issues of it. Um 
and I didn't it didn't strike a chord with me for whatever reason. Uh, part of it is because of the like Frank. Part of it is Frank Quitely's art. Um, I I love him. I think he's great. But at the same time, sometimes his style is just kind of off. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So part of it was that, and otherwise, I don't remember why I stopped. But um, the show kind of reinvigorated my interest in going back. So it's good that we're doing this anyway. Um, I was struck by how different the two properties are, at least from the first episode that I watched. Uh, you know, um, but overall, it was an enjoyable experience to read through all of this, even if it was um, uneven and definitely lacking a fleshiness that it's it's clear like if you if you just watch the first episode of the show versus reading this you can see how much more filled in the show is and that's a problem that Mark Millar has i think he favors um eliminating complexity from his stories in order to deliver a more widescreen movie experience uh and i think that sometimes that can work and in this case, I think it works well, except when it doesn't, and it takes a story down a couple of pegs. I'll jump in because I really don't have much to add to what Sean laid out. That is almost exactly how I feel, um, and I have a similar history with it, where I was I picked up you know maybe the first two or three issues back when Jupiter's Legacy was contemporary, um, and I think I fell off of it because of financial reasons, and it wasn't. It wasn't like grabbing me enough to warrant it being one of the books I was picking up. Um, but I didn't dislike it. Uh, but I never really had a major draw to go back. But, you know, I-, I was happy to do so with this. And I, it's very much a mixed bag for me because it was a book that I found very easy to read and I enjoyed reading it. Um, and I like, it was one of those books like I sat down to read the first volume and I ended up reading the first three just because I was into it. But I I think I have a lot of the same criticisms that Sean laid out, where I think for as much here that is interesting to me, I think that I like the ideas a lot more than I like the execution. Um, I think the bullet points of the story are better than how they actually play out. And um, I really, you know, and I said this during our our All-Star Superman review, and I I, I got some flack for it, but I really don't like Frank Quietly's style. Um, It it does not speak to me, and I think the stuff that that Sean highlighted in terms of kind of like the form and just how he draws faces sometimes um, really just are hard for me to connect with, and it makes, um, I think, some of the stuff in Legacy harder for me to vibe with because I just don't like the way that it looks. You know, I wasn't really familiar with this book uh, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Um, Back then, I remember Mark Millar had like these, um, he would have these uh, contests for Millar World, which is like his his own line of publishing that he does. Uh, And I think I read the first issue. So I was trying to submit uh, something writing to, to that competition or whatever. Uh, but I, I guess I completely forgot about it at the time. Um, 
I wasn't really blown away by the TV show that's on Netflix right now. I, I, I wasn't terribly impressed. I thought it was fine. So I, I didn't really have high expectations. But where I differ from uh, Sean to a lesser extent, and especially Pete, is the draw for me here was Frank Quietly's art. Because I am a big fan of his art. And it was definitely worth the price of admission. I think is a beautiful book. I can't stress that enough. The paneling is interesting. I really like the character designs. And I will say, I think I like... Now, granted, I've only watched the first episode. But I like the book a lot more than I like the show so far. Uh, Based on what I've seen in the show, I mean. Um, The one episode. The whole episode. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) A lot of the first episode is you can find in the first issue, and I guess if I'm doing a one for one, I'd like that first issue a lot more than I like what I saw in the first episode. Um, so, yeah, I, the, the, another thing I want to say is uh, my mileage varies with Mark Millar. I'm not always the biggest fan of his writing. Um, a lot of the times I feel like he's gratuitous. Uh, I feel like this was pretty grounded for him. So I, 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 I'm glad I read it. Cool. Yeah, I, I've not, um, I've recently started picking up more Millar, and so I think this was cool to sort of fill out that um, kind of completionist mindset for me of his other works, and I, I had a lot of fun with it. It was something that I wasn't expecting to Pete's point to be as quick and easy to read. Um, to kind of just like pick up and and fall into the world, and I had fun with it. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit more, but for anybody who's joined us this far, you know this was the our spoiler free sort of top line uh, details. And um, if you haven't read it, go pick them up. Uh, I laid out sort of how we're reading it. You can also just read it volumes one through four, um, and uh, definitely come back and finish up if uh, you are going out to go pick it up. And uh, just generally, if we, the Comics Palace, for those of you who don't know, uh, we do a weekly podcast uh, where we cover news, we do reviews, we've been recently picking up uh, a bunch of the uh, image uh, reviews as well in advance thanks to uh, their, uh, their offerings. And um, definitely feel free to hit us up after you finish this episode or if you decide to go back on any others. Um, we have a huge catalog of book clubs uh, as well as episodes that we feel like you would probably find something interesting there. Um, hit us up on Gmail, the comics pals at gmail.com on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, the comics pals and, uh, join our discord, continue the conversation. We have a lot of fun. This was actually a listener suggestion from Viltrum warrior. He had done it prior to the show even being coming out. We figured this is the perfect time to tackle both at once and go check out our other book clubs as well. We have invincible. Most recently we did a watch long for or a, we watch series where we watched episode by episode for that uh tying into the book club as well and we had our captain america or sam wilson captain america uh book club which we also did a watch along for uh, we watch series uh for that so go check out some of the other content that we put out and um we'll catch you when you guys get back here but for those of us staying along we can jump right into volume one specifically or at least volume one in terms of jupiter's legacy and uh, the the focus of this book in particular is on the dynamics between a first generation 
of superheroes, the the union, um, sort of the old guard versus the second generation and the the, the kids, those that have been, uh, whose powers have been sort of passed down and maybe um, they're a bit more cynical about their powers and specifically focusing on the Samson family, which is Sheldon, Grace, Walter, uh, and Chloe alongside um, uh, Hutch, who comes in a little bit later. I was... Uh, and Brandon, yeah, and Brandon, um, he pops in. Um, I I was struck by sort of how uh, direct the allegory between gods and uh, superheroes Millar makes. Uh, obviously, Morrison has done this in the past. Other writers have done this in the past. But I think what I found really interesting was the way that he ties it into the American dream, like directly and makes these superheroes like American. And as much as historically they've been created in, in the US, um, I found that really interesting about how, uh, from what I read, Millar feels that the, the US sort of as like an institution is great and grand and um, pushes forward and can succeed in a lot of ways. But this is countered by the generation after where the the kids are a little more cynical. They are uh, about it for the exposure and their own interests. So I was curious as to what you guys felt the, the dichotomy there between that old guard and that younger guard was and how that played for you with this book. I found myself kind of frustrated by it. Okay. When we did our review of the first episode of the show, I remember I drew the comparison to um, uh, Kingdom Come. The DC Kingdom Come, thank you. And how one of the things that I liked about episode one of the show was that it felt like it was actually making the younger generation of characters um, have a little bit more autonomy and felt like their point of view was was better represented. Uh, rather than it just kind of being like, you know, the old guard are are good because they worked for it and everything, and these young kids are, you know, they've got no respect and blah, 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 blah. And I felt like that was very much mirrored in the book, um, where it was like, you know, Brandon especially is not a character. Um, he is paper, paper thin. Uh, I think he has like five pages where he actually talks <laughs> yeah. or is an actor at all. Um, and... That already is not good, um, but I also because like the whole premise of the book, right? Like you look at like the ba the back page of it, right? And it says like they're the kids of the greatest superheroes in the world. Can they fill their shoes? And it's like that's not what this book is about um, at all, really. And that's their conflict in one issue, two issues, I guess. But from then on, it's like a very different story, um, and that that was frustrating for me. And I, I really, I, I had a hard time believing a lot of what happened and like buying into it. Like I, I felt like it was really odd to me that there isn't one character who isn't blood related to the utopian who isn't like, maybe we don't murder Superman and take over the government. Like, like everybody just gets in line with that plan, like immediately. And I feel like there are a lot of moments like that in the book. Um, and I'm kind of jumping around, but like 
there there's stuff that happens in volume two where I felt very similarly where it's like there's a conversation and someone's like I have this idea and the character's either like no way man and then they're like well all right I'll do it anyway or they're immediately on board for whatever the crazy plan is with no no pitching no convict nothing and it's like I just don't buy these characters actions because a lot of them are not really characters like they are like toys you know um they're set pieces and that's not always a bad thing, but in a book that's about legacy and about characters who have these long histories together and, you know, the weight of living up to your father's image and all, all these pieces that are, I think, interesting family drama or, you know, extended friends clan kind of drama. Um, and I don't really feel like Millar does anything with it. Like he, he hints at it. He sets a lot of it up, but like none of it really plays off in a way that's emotionally satisfying. Um, and I, I don't think there's a worse example of that than the dichotomy between the old guard and the young guard. Because two of the young guard are, or three of them even, I guess, like have names. And two of them are not characters. They're henchmen. And one of them is, they're like, she's a dumb slut. And then she becomes the main character, but not really. It's her son. And it's, I don't know, man. Like, it didn't work for me. That, that part really fell flat, I thought. Yeah, I really liked... Um how you know and i don't want to like compare it to the show all all episode but in the show you're 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 giving the impression that it's really about like brandon has a different way of seeing things than his dad and it's not that it's not necessarily that either one is right or wrong it's just different and you're given that same impression between uh the utopian and and his brother uh, brainwave walter too yeah they yeah. they have valid perspectives and you can see how some of that is fueled by what they went through during the recession uh, and the great depression and the death of their father um uh and that's 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 absent like all the nuance of the reasons why characters act how they do is not present. And that's kind of what I meant earlier. Mark Millar can set a grand stage, but he doesn't fill it with, um, there's not that much meat on the bone. And sometimes that's frustrating. There are moments in this book that are over the top good, but it's, it's, it's in spaces. Whereas I think the premise is amazing, but it just doesn't, doesn't do much with what he himself, uh, set up. Walter is just a complete monster. And, at first, I was like, okay, he's doing this because he sees a greater need for the world and he needs to eliminate the utopian for the greater good. That's bad, but I can see that. Like, I okay, fine. But then when you get into like how he actually mind-controlled uh, Sky Fox's ex-wife to be with him, just to stick it to him, and he's been lying about that all these years, and all these things, it's just like, ah, come on, man. Like, there's no, there's no layer to his character. He's just a monster. He becomes, like, cartoonishly bad, right? And and I, I felt the exact same way, Sean, where it's like, I I didn't like what he did in in the first volume, but it's like, you feel like it's in in service of a greater good that he believes in. Right. And that it's like, this is what I have to do before I'm dead. Right. And that's a motivation I can get behind. Every other action he takes from then on is him just being a shit and being like straight up a bad dude. And because of that, 
it I think takes the weight out of a lot of his other actions, but it also it it made me question the other characters, right? Like if he's always been bad if he's always been evil why does he wait until now to do anything about it why does he wait until now to try to do something like what he does in the first volume right and like why does sheldon even consider believing him over george right who is his best friend and he has this acknowledgement that his brother is kind of a bad guy sometimes and like he doesn't totally believe him and then confronts him about it and what expects him to just be like oh yeah dude i uh, totally i've been brain my wife has been brainwashed and uh i turned you against your best friend that's cool right like it doesn't make sense it's not believable it it i feel like it it, it worked for me I, I see the the points that um you guys are raising in terms of it like from a character perspective not necessarily making that sense and it not paying off emotionally for either one um it it works for me in service of the story and for painting him to be that that villain because i feel like at least in the the way that um in the order that i read it it also gives me context into like why he would be willing to go so far to get rid of his brother like that um and be able to manipulate uh, Brandon into considering whether or not he should, you know, uh, lead after we 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 murder the Utopian and his mother, uh, Lady Liberty. Uh, valid points, but I, I think for me it, it 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 works in service of that that plot at least. Yeah, you know, it, fair enough. You know, the more I think about it, I don't think the book does a great job painting like a division between the golden generation and these gen X slash millennial characters. But it feels like it's more like the legacy of two different characters where it's like Simon and Walter or excuse me, um, uh, Samson and Walter. Samson's the last name. Sheldon. 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 Yeah. It's alliterative. Uh, Because it's, it's like their ideologies are a play here. Um, Because obviously, um, with Walter, he thinks that with their grand powers and all their abilities that they should be in control of everything. He, you know, uh, Sheldon points out to him in the first volume that, you know, the reason why he doesn't trust him here is because his own ego gets in his way all the time. And he proves to be, he's proven correct, obviously by the end of the first volume. Um, but for Sheldon, you know, his ideology is that superheroes shouldn't, interfere in political and stately affairs and they need to rise above that and you see that in Jupiter's Circle when they talk about how they shouldn't work for the FBI and things like that. Uh, and that's really what it comes down to because you have Brandon who ends up being basically um, you know a puppet for for Walter's agenda but then you have um, you have uh, the daughter Chloe, Chloe. who is in the beginning, like Pete pointed out, you know, she's a whore. She's, she's, you know, mugging up all this celebrity attention and getting all these sponsorships. But she ends up kind of begrudgingly taking up the mantle and legacy of her father, Samson. And that's kind of what's at play here, I think. That's like the legacy that's in conflict. It's not generational necessarily. It's, it's like inheriting the legacy of like the greatest superhero ever. That's kind of how I read it. Um, and I guess it's the greatest supervillain ever too. That's, that's the kind of thing that's at play here. Um, now 
does he do a great job of like fleshing that out? I think he does a good enough job. I think he gets like the, the macro points on the page and you're able to follow along. It, it keeps the story moving briskly. Um, like I, we understand what is at play here, you know, Do we? I think so. I mean, I think that, I think that you're ultimately right, but I think that that's like the thing that leaves me feeling like disappointed is that like, you know, I liked the book. Like I enjoyed the book, but like it could have been so much more. It could have been a book that I walked away being like, this is one of my favorites. This is a book I'd recommend to anybody. And I wouldn't because like there are other books that do the same story or the same kind of story better. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is that um, it, it's interesting because this greatest generation is kind of left, you know, America and, so, um, and the Western world as it were, in a place of, you know, economic collapse, basically. And Samson believes that, you know, it's just another... Sheldon. Keep saying Samson. Sheldon... That's their last name. The Bazinga guy. Walter. (laughs) Sheldon uh, believes it's a valley in the economic cycle and that things will improve. Um, But because they've had such a grip on, like, uh, you know, kind of like the authority roles in society which I don't think is too dissimilar to how a lot of Gen Xers and millennials feel about baby boomers in general in society, because they're still in positions of authority. Uh, you, you find that, you know, there is like a, the younger generation is, is without purpose in the beginning of the story, you know, like they're not actually in positions of authority to dictate discourse and change how things move. And I think that's maybe I'm filling in a characterization here, but that's how I interpret what Brandon's after, you know, he's looking for that purpose because all the good villains died or whatever he says. Um, And so when we get to the second volume, as we focus on Chloe's kid, it's like at this point they've inherited the earth, but it's been left in ruin. it's like, once again, we have to turn to the younger generation. I think what this what the show does a lot better than the the book does at all is, is like Sean and Pete were saying, is with Brandon's character. And I think that's where I think Miller really wanted to put the story. I think, at least based on what I've seen from, you know, the little bit of the show and this book, I, I, I think, you know, Brandon was the the older child, he's got the utopian's powers, he should be sort of the next in line. He should be the good one. And Chloe is sort of the bad one, right? Um, but the story sort of focuses on that switch where Brandon actually becomes the villain and then Chloe becomes the hero. But the funny thing is at the beginning, like, they're both the bad kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> in the book... Uh, in Jupiter's Legacy, that is non-existent. They both just suck shit. Um, and so, like, Chloe's character has a lot more growth and it makes sense. But, yeah, like we said, like, Brandon's just doesn't. And I think that's... She at least has an arc. Yeah, and I think that's where this book really, really fails is like playing the the siblings against each other in a believable way 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think that there there is a way to tell the story in which Brandon does still end up in a similar place, but with a lot more nuance and explanation as to why. Um, you know, the the like he comes everybody in the book is is flat, frankly. And that's a problem that uh, sometimes I think Mark does have with his stories where the characters are just not very well developed. They're ideas more than they are fully fledged people. Um, and that's never been more clear to me than here. A lot of people um, lobbed that criticism at Civil War. Um, I disagree with it because the characters have inherent characterization and that they've existed for 50 years or 60 years at that point and in here they don't so we're learning them for the first time and they're very basic and that's why it's hard to care um the characters who got that development i ended up caring about a ton like by the time you get through the whole story sky fox is great sheldon's great right um but those the the elder statesman heroes are the only ones and chloe um, because things actually happen to them and with them and, and we see them develop. And if the story took place in a more like linear fashion, maybe things would have felt different. If the book, if the thing started with Circle and went all the way into Legacy and then whatever Requiem's going to be. And Requiem was where the events of, of, of Jupiter's Legacy 2 took place. I think I'd feel a lot better about it. But it's, it feels truncated and not dense whereas it needed to be dense because we don't know who these people are compare this to watchmen right by the end of watchmen whether you like it or not um you understand every character and why they do what they do whether they're right or wrong and here that's not quite the case and also i don't know if anybody else got this feeling but like i don't feel like circle's done like uh, two like has a lot of threads that are left um unpulled and it feels weird to get to Jupiter's Legacy 2, which very much, like, expects you to have an understanding of Jupiter's Circle, I think, at that point. And then, like, I, like you know, two of the... We were talking about the characters that get fleshed out, right? All of the old guard, except for Lady Liberty, really, um, get fleshed out pretty well. Like, there's an entire issue about... Um, Richie and I forget what his superhero name is, but the blue guy blue bolt? with blue bolt. Yeah. And it's like, he's not in legacy. Like he gets more character development than the characters that are in, you know, the, the quote unquote main story, you know, and <laughs> which is weird. And, and I do think that that was meant to add to their characters to give you that reasoning. I think in the order that I, that I read it, it definitely gave me the context for uh, for Walter. But to your point, that needed to be in the story for me to care about the current events less so give me context for why they make sense and I should care. The stuff in Jupiter Circle with Walter is the only parts about Jupiter Circle that I really didn't like. Oh, interesting. Because um, I think it makes Jupiter's legacy worse. How? From what you and I said earlier, like I think it oh, like right, it right. it really doubles down on Walter is a bad guy. Walter's always been a bad guy. And it's like, okay, well then his his act of killing his brother and his his sister-in-law is not nuanced or interesting. He's just a, a sociopathic douche. Like, okay, cool. That's flat. Like that's boring. Even still, like 
while his act of, you know, brainwashing Sky Fox's uh, fiance or whatever, like that's a shitty thing to do and it's an evil thing to do. It sort of comes across as, oh, booby boo, I did it because I was bullied. (laughs) And like, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel like the book presents it that way. Like, I don't think it necessarily asks you to feel sympathy for him. But like, it also. But to your point, like, it does present him as like, like he's he's sad about it, and it's like I don't care if he's fucking sad. Like, fuck this guy. Like, he's a like he's a monster. He's a fucking monster. I think it's fine to fucking make him a monster. I don't think he needs to be. I I don't know. I I, I think. I don't need him to be like a nuanced character that kills for like a reason. Like he's a like he killed his brother. There's no redemption there. That even if it's like it's for the I don't want him to have redemption, but I want him to have a motivation that's more interesting than he's always been an asshole and he's power hungry. Okay, great. So he's a basic ass supervillain. Like I think the idea of him being like I legitimately think that I have an answer for how to save the world, and the only way for me to do that is to conspire against my brother. And, like, is that? Like, I think that's more dynamic. I feel like we've been seeing that kind of villain a lot the last decade. I think it's okay sometimes for a villain just to be a fucking villain, though. Like I, he sucks shit. That's fine with me. I think what it. I, I think what it does is so. Um, one of the things that really pops up are like these golden age tropes throughout like the book and and i feel like he falls into one of those where he's just a bad dude for bad dude's sake and there's a lot there um with uh jason where he's like bumbling to play soccer and shit and he has to do bad at his math homework and stuff and i i I think that helps to alleviate some of the the problems that valid that you guys are raising and what makes it work a little bit better for for me because uh, those are those are tropes that he's uh, in my opinion, he's providing sort of an homage to. Yeah, and you see it with the Utopian too. He reads very much like a Silver Raid Superman. Like you talk about, I think of the bedtime stories that Chloe would read, Jason, where it's like, oh, he never actually wanted to hurt anyone. He would uh, try to outthink his people he was fighting, put him in like these elaborate, like capture him in elaborate ways and stuff. Like that's all stuff that harkens back to you know the 50s and i think i think some of the characterizations reflect that it, for me it, the, the way the characters are written even if it's thin i, I didn't really take umbrage with it i i struggle to vibe with that because like why would the utopian then not even consider that george was telling the truth ever right why like why <laughs> why does he never suspect his brother of being a bad person if he has a history of being a bad person and doing bad things? He's the only one of the characters in their whole group that has a problem with Richie being gay, right? And that's not a red flag for the Utopian, right? Not, not back He's, then. I don't think so. I mean, they all, I don't know, dude. Like, the whole thing was that they're all like, oh, it's fine. Like, he's still our friend. We don't care. And it's like, your brother's the only one. And it's like, your brother's the only one who has a conflict with George. Your brother's the only one who lies. Like, it's like, and he never suspects him, except he actually does, but not enough to ever actually sit down and talk to George about it. It's like, it's like my brother's keeper kind of thing, where it's like, it's still his brother. And even if his brother's out of line, you fucking Mm -hmm. still go with your brother. Even, you know. Even if it means putting your best friend in jail. Well, he, he mentions it in a moment where he's like, I well, like we are blood, right? Like that is that is something that should have value. And then we we get 
the the whole dilemma where like oh did he really manipulate Sonny or did he not and and that happens sure. sort of sequentially there uh, yeah I, I just feel like all of these things li- have they line up so so poorly for me that it's just like sure. it's hard for me to accept all of it yeah you know uh kale last point I, and then sorry, we can yeah, we m- move on i think i think the problem especially in in circle and the 50s stuff is that the rest of the series is about taking a look at these characters lives you know we see blue bolt is gay uh uh the the uh fits the, the flare the flare fits the, his whole affair and his, everything his affair um and the utopians uh failed marriage uh, uh like these are all looks at these characters flaws but we never really get that with walter I don't really feel like we get that with Brainwave. Like, he's just a weenie. Um, and, like, it it doesn't... If, if Millar wants to go behind the curtain with these superheroes, I feel like he's got to do it with all of them. And he didn't do it with Brainwave. Or he didn't do it enough that it was satisfying, at least. Uh, I mean, I think the fact that he was a weenie was his flaw, like <laughs> his ego. That that was his big his big thing. He had you know, uh, he thought he had a big dick and he was trying to flaunt it. Like that that was you know. Um, but uh, I do want to dig in more about the Jupiter Circle characters because um, there's I feel like there's a lot more there. Um, and before we get too far away. We had a few questions in the Discord. Again, if you guys join, you can uh, send us. We usually make an announcement before we do a recording and uh, listeners submit questions within there. Um, we have one from Viltrum Warrior, who, again, recommended the book club. Um, and we addressed a little bit of this, but I want to add in like a, an additional piece here. He says, something people criticize Miller for is that he's just doing a riff on established characters. Do you feel that the characters are unique or would this be better as a DC Elseworlds? Um, book and what I want to add is did you guys feel that this series as a whole it, so Circle and Legacy was derivative at all well, yeah absolutely yes. but that's, that's the, the point, point. <laughs> yeah 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 I think the yeah. characters are so general all across the board that I mean how could it not be utterly to, derivative but to to its own fault no, I don't. Think I don't that. think so. I, I think that that is effective because if this, if the Utopian were Superman and Walter was like whoever, like I don't know if I'm as interested in that. Just because again, those characters have established identities, and you can't force a square peg into a round hole, right? Like they would be forced to act in, in ways that don't necessarily jive with their character for Millar to get his point across, which again is a criticism some people have of Civil War. And I certainly would not want to see that done with characters we know. I think creating characters of his own that are just, you know, templates of other characters is fine. Again, you're supposed to fill those in. He doesn't do that. Um, <laughs> right. But the idea itself is perfect. Yeah, I think I think derivative has a negative connotation that I wouldn't apply to this. I feel like it's more like homage, deconstruction, what you know, whatever word you want to use to talk about it. Like, I, I think similar to like you know, like a Watchmen, right? Like those characters are 
are analogs for other characters, right? Like they are derivative of other characters, but that's the point. The point is to like use what you already know about those characters. We, we talked about this with Invincible, right? It's it's about using what you know about superheroes and those tropes to build on that and do something new or to subvert your expectations or in this case, maybe not subvert them. Could you, could you <laughs> imagine someone insulting and criticizing Watchmen for being derivative of superhero comics? <laughs> right, yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, derivative says that it's like copying and it's like, it's not copying, it's, it's, it's building on, oh, well, you know who Superman is, right? Utopia, he's like Superman in this world. Got it, cool. That's a shorthand I can use that you can now tell a story with that that means something to me as as someone who knows about superheroes right it's a device and um one other question here and i'll add a little bit more to it um just because i had a similar question uh there's an example given by walter where he says you know some states have 50 percent unemployment um he has his plan to fix poverty uh and they start talking about his moral responsibility as superheroes to be able to do something uh Kefis asks what are your thoughts on the argument that the main heroes have to help to fix everything or to leave it to trusted officials to do it i mean that's like the age-old question right i mean people always say like why doesn't superman solve world hunger and why doesn't he solve like global conflicts and stuff like that i mean that's what the book is trying to kind of address here um you know maybe um I mean, if you, in reality, is if there were real superheroes, they would have to do more to like, you know, impact the planet, right? Like, if you had like people with superhero, super, like, in so the whole authority thing is like the authority just they ultimately take over the planet and govern it as superpowered like dictators, but you know, I, I don't know if it's a superhero's obligation to become a dictator, but. <laughs> I think I, it, I think it's uh, fine to you know try to end like bloodshed around the planet and feed starving people and stuff. I think that that's probably one of the like that question is probably the thing that the book does the best job of exploring because it actually uh, tries to look at the ramifications. Right, um, we see ten years of what happens when the superheroes take over and like run the government and everything goes to shit. Right. Um, and, and I think, I think that's the most compelling point that the utopian makes as a character, right? Is that like, well, we're civil servants and we're not elected. Like we are given these powers and the best thing that we can do with them is to help people. Right. And that like, what makes you Walter, right. Um, qualified to lead a country. And the answer is nothing because he does a bad job. <laughs> I, I, I really I really don't think the book does a good job at all because it's one-sided. It shows you what happens mm. if the worst possible people who have bad intentions get in that position, not what happens if the best people with the best intentions. Walter actually is smart. He's a genius. If Walter was not bad, if Walter really wanted to help in an advisory role to a, a person, a president who he could help along the way, you know, to sit in those meetings and, and say, well, that's great. I see this. I see how we could solve things this way. And they take his advice or they don't. And maybe things improve. That would be great. But the book never gives us that. And that that element of it frustrates me because, again, 
it's a time where I think Mark Miller kind of like shortcuts um, because we don't know what happens because we see the supervillains basically running the world. Mm. That's not the that's not the question. What now? I thought about that too. Uh, as Marco was asking it, if you know, best case scenario, things do improve substantially. One, that's kind of aping the um, Superman Red Sun story a bit, but also, where's the conflict then? I wonder. I think that's perfectly fair and reasonable, but you could also say, well, frankly, superheroes do not understand the plight of man because they don't live as men. And that's something I could get behind. Again, it's the nuance and complexity versus, oh, the villains took over. Guess we got to stop them. There's nothing to that. It's it's frustrating, too, because to your point, you made me think of there's that character that they introduce in Circle who's the, like, super uh, – there's, like, a mad scientist who, like, takes away their powers Dr. or whatever. Hobbs. Yeah, and then Sheldon goes and, like, rehabilitates him through conversation or whatever, and then he is this very smart person who's dedicating his life to trying to solve the world's problems or whatever. And, like, you, it, if the book had more space, you could explore that maybe a little bit longer and, like, you know, present an ideological alternative. This is jumping ahead, uh, but when, when uh, I'm presuming that Requiem is going to be sort of the continuation of Jason's character, and I think that a a character of a character like Jason, who has his morals come from the Utopian, to be able to lead, let's say, versus just sort of be the the moniker of goodness, uh, is that a future that you guys see that makes sense to be able to? Uh, not take over, but to, to help lead the world towards that like next uh, era, so to say. What I think is interesting is like he's a synthesis of the best parts of of Utopian and Sky Fox. Like he's he's more radical, you know. Like Utopian is this great symbol and everything, and he can inspire people. But like, how how much good did he actually do at the end of the day? Aside from like the the people that he physically saved, right? Like. Not as much as he wanted to. And, you know, Sky Fox tried to affect world change in a different way um, and, you know, became a criminal for it. Um, and it seems like Jason maybe has an opportunity to learn from both of their mistakes and try things his own way. Uh, Kelly, you were going to say something? Jason, uh, Pete, sorry to answer my question. Jason is Chloe and Hutch's kid. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen. What clearly the wrong way was was um, Sheldon's way because he got teamed up on by every superhero on the planet, and his face melted off. So that wasn't a very good way. Don't remind <laughs> so, me. So it could be better. It could be better. <laughs> um, staying within Jason, I, I I thought it was really interesting. He was one of my favorite characters. I thought it was really interesting that even though he grew up in. Uh, a really a situation where he's experiencing the the worst effects of Walter and Brandon's regime that he he sort of shines through as this positive person driven by his grandfather's ideals um, and and this sort of speaks to the idea that that Phil laid out about legacy and continuing that legacy and at the end of the book he becomes you know the new utopian um, what is it about the uh, the the fact that their parents or his parents 
were more indifferent to the successes of uh, the utopian where J- Jason kind of just like eats it up and wants to emulate the utopian and, and doesn't want to move away like his parents did. Well, for one, Jason had like parents, you know, like Chloe didn't really have a dad. And also like, I don't know, something about growing up under like the brightest star and it not seeing seeming so bright or whatever. Like to Jason, these are all stories, you know? Right. It's really easy to romanticize. Exactly. Him. It's mm-hmm. really easy to romanticize him. And also like they're growing up in like a dystopian environment. Like there's there's a reason to hope for something better. And utopia the utopian in Jason's eyes represents hope, which is like that's the Superman analog, right? I think that all that's true, but I think the 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 thing you said about him having parents was the most important factor. Chloe Chloe does Chloe and Brandon do have parents. And the book doesn't establish very well, at least in my opinion, why they don't have good relationships with their parents. Cuz even I think for even Chloe's relationship with uh Grace, uh Lady Liberty didn't seem that bad. No, the, not the, really no, at all. The snippet it seemed like they got along yeah. fine. I think yeah. I think the key is more in the fact that they grew up with everything handed to them. They they didn't the difference between the young and the old generation of heroes, at least in terms of the the the, the legacy the children is that the adults had to go get their powers. They had to do something to go get that. They had to go on a journey that there was no assurance they would even survive. And that creates uh, uh, the powers mean something because they weren't just gifted them. They have to go get them. The kids were born with them. They're apathetic about all that. It's just, it is what it is for them. They're celebrities. They're super popular. They're famous. Everybody loves them. They can have anything. So they have everything. And they don't care about anything. That's what happens. Um, Jason grew up with nothing except his parents. And one of the best parts of the book is when Jason meets his grandfather, when he meets Sky Fox. And it's Sky Fox's love for not only his son, Hutch, but also for his grandson that brings him back into the game. And you really understand that it matters that Jason had a dad. And he even tells Sky Fox that. I think I think he tells him that. He does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's and when he kicks them out. <laughs> that moment is so good and it's so effective and I was so invested when I saw that but when I thought about it I was like damn this is why Walter and Sheldon's father had to be in the story and the fact that he's not really hurts it because we don't understand why they are how they are because we don't see their parents the book is telling you that that's what matters that how you're raised who raised you having your parents matters we do not see the parents of the the two biggest forces of the book and i think it suffers from that it's a book about generations but the generation that sired this generation isn't in it exactly i i push back a little bit because because I feel like to the issue in Jupiter Circle where, um, what's her name? Not Grace. Uh, Jane Jane leaves, Utopian's wife, where there's this expectation where her as a human has to, like being with him, she sort of feels like there's this, uh, 
level that she needs to be at. She needs to be at her best and any moment where she isn't, there's a, it's a, it's an automatic failure. And I feel like that gets passed on to the kids even more so because they have powers and have that responsibility and New Hoban believes that they need to use it both responsibly and to be able to use it in a way that benefits mankind. But if you fail at that, you it's it's inexcusable because you're supposed to be at that level of the utopian well it's like the thing where you know you have like a superstar parent that's like a like an athlete or an actor and like you have like a chill like a child actor or like a child pro like a prodigal athlete kid or whatever and hear so many stories about them burning out because just all the fucking pressure put on them by like their parents or just expectations from the media of you know like, oh, you're Wayne Gretzky's kid. Why aren't you amazing at baseball, which you tried to do? Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, that's a lot of pressure to put on a kid who, like, you know, to Sean's point, didn't go out and earn it. Yeah, you know, they were just well, born and the pressure was put on them at birth. I, I think even even maybe not more importantly, but I think equally importantly, like didn't earn it, but also didn't ask yeah. for it. Right. Like Sheldon and, and you know, all the people that followed him went on this journey, knowing all those things that Sean laid out, but also like coming back then with this sense of purpose, right? Like we achieved this, we got this incredible mission from these fucking aliens to save our country. And, and like that, they got to define what that meant. Right. And then their kids come into the world with all the power in the world, all the privilege in the world, and all the expectation in the world, and they flounder. I I don't know how that was a pushback on what I was saying, but um, I don't think that that changes the fact that having Walter and Sheldon's father be parents, not just father, but parents be in the story would have helped it. Um, and also... Everything you guys are saying is probably true, but the book doesn't do a good job of showing you that. Uh, Chloe and Brandon are just screw-ups for the sake of it. And you never really see the impact that Sheldon has on them as a father who, you know, abandoned them or, or didn't make time for them or was hard on them. or Like, those, those elements aren't present. We see, again, that Chloe and her mom are fine and... For all intents and purposes, Sheldon spends a lot of his time working at his shop. You know, he seems he doesn't come across as this inaccessible, overbearing dad. Again, if you're comparing it to the show, the show shows you that very clearly. This book doesn't doesn't paint them that way. So while you guys, again, are probably right, you're extrapolating. The book is not telling yeah. you that. Oh, and to build on that, like, those things are boiled down to, like, one balloon worth of dialogue exchange, right? Like, Sheldon, uh, or I'm not, uh, Brandon yells at Sheldon and is like, if you fucking respected me, this wouldn't have happened. And Chloe has a similar thing with him where she's like, well, where were you when I needed a fucking dad, you know? Like, and it's like, okay, yeah, great, like... You tell us that, you tell us that they have a bad relationship or whatever, but, like... That's it, you know, to, again, the point you just made, like the episode shows you through how tense it is when Chloe shows up for dinner and shit like that, right? Like they're small character moments, but it gives you what you need to grab onto. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, the, you know, the first thing you really see uh, the mom 
uh, when, when Chloe shows up to like rehab there for three months, she's like, "Oh, we're not judging you. We love you." <laughs> she gets right. fucking stabbed to death. It's like, Gary, there's cookies in the sense. oven. <laughs> the, um, so I the, the the pushback was specific to them still having the parents, but um, like additional additional context for why they still end up as like those groups not just the fact that uh they they don't have the parents considering that they both do he seems successful he seems to be an all-around nice person but there's this inherent pressure by association that gets explained in the jane issue that probably passes down to the kids the same way the powers do Dude, that Jane issue is so bad. So she's Wait, telling what? you all this, right? She's telling you all this, right? Where was the evidence of this pressure? Where where was the evidence of her ever having to do anything? Like she's telling you that, right? But when did it backfire on her? When when did it go wrong? When was she exposed? When when did she feel that? Because everything you see is that he does everything perfectly. Her life is a breeze and she's got no problems. I, I read this thing um, on the, like, image wiki or whatever that claimed that Walter uh, is the reason that they break up, that he, like, manipulates her. I didn't see that in the book. I, and, like, I try to go back and – but I, I've seen that said places. I'm wondering if that's something that Mark Millar, like, confirmed somewhere else. I don't know. But um, <laughs> if that is the case – it speaks to the fact that, that wasn't communicated super clearly. I mean, and if it's not the case, then it really doesn't make a ton of sense to me either. Definitely seems like a shitty play on Walter's part, given that he hooks up with Grace and gets two power children. So that yeah, works out for Walter in the long run. I, I, I would rather not even entertain that because that's not present anywhere in the book, and that's not that. that that's I was just throwing it out because I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, for me, that worked. Um, I, I I definitely felt like it 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 makes sense in that she's she, uh, she's too comfortable with where her life is. Where as much as um, she says that she needs like turbulence, you need conflict. Where as much as you can find some sort of utopian paradise, uh, there's there's something that gets left unfulfilled. Where because you exist alongside this person. You only exist and you don't actually add value. And as a person, you need to be able to add some sort of value. And she doesn't have that in that relationship because this person is perfect, does everything. And she she's left only to the word of him loving her, but not being able to actually prove that to herself that she's an actor in the relationship. I think the thing uh, is... That's weird. No? I think, I think the thing is like... Boy, I would love to have a husband who doesn't make me do yeah. anything. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, man. And if I really, I mean, and I mean really wanted that conflict, I'd go get a job. She has a job. She That's is, the she thing. She, that was the thing. Like, that was the part that was so hard for me. Like, if she was, like, a kept woman or whatever and was right. like, oh, she she's a housewife and her whole life is just him taking care of her. And, like, that's not fulfilling. I buy that. Her being, she literally says, I'm on, I'm the only woman on every, you know, business, you know, fortune oh, 500 yeah. list or whatever. She like, she's an extremely successful, powerful woman. 
and she feels inadequate in, in and the like, 50s right where right the, the like what you just said would have been that would have made perfect sense because it fits with the times she's in She's she's not even like right for that time in terms of how women how women's lives were. She's perfect too. So I because, don't get what she's mad about. It's weird. And like especially because I I also feel like and this is us workshopping the book, right? But to your point, Sean, Sheldon is from the 30s. So he wouldn't vibe maybe like you could make that conflict make sense of him being like, why does my wife need a job? Like, why am I not enough? And like that would have been that would have been good character conflict. And I would have bought that, you know. All right. Fair enough. Worked for me. I don't know. It did. That's cool. It did work for me, too. Like I I'm, you know, reading it. I don't know. I bought it for the sake of the story. But now that we're sitting here talking about it, it's like. Hey, wait a minute. Like- <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that I think Mark Millar does a lot. I think Mark Millar relies on the style. He's very he's a very talented writer. He's a very stylistic writer. He always works with tremendous artists. He relies a lot on you falling so far into the story that you don't necessarily uh critique all of the minor details as much as you might in a lesser writer's hands or a lesser creative team's hands in general. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that necessarily. But for me, especially with a story that seems like it's trying to say so much or it has so much that it could say, it's unfortunate that it chooses not to and also just chooses to be dumb yeah, sometimes. Famously, I feel like he just wants you to kind of fill in the blanks on your own. Like, without even saying anything, it's like, oh, well, I can, you know, as you start narratively going through the, the story, you kind of fill in the blanks on your own as you're reading along. That's kind of his style. That only works occasionally. It, it's frustrating for me because I think that, like, we had the question earlier from uh, Viltrum Warrior about, like, would this work better as, like, a, a, a DC Elseworlds story or something like that? And it's like, I don't know that it would, but, like, at least then you would, like, asking me to project things onto the characters is less of an ask you know because you know um them. yeah i know them i know who they're supposed to be and i know what they mean to each other right like i know that superman and batman are tight right okay cool like that makes sense whereas with this i think it asks me to do that and then it makes the characters make decisions that are not in line with what i am expecting so like it asking me to do that and then subverting my expectations in a way that doesn't make sense to me was a big problem for me because that was something with like uh, I I like we talked earlier about how Sky Fox is is a cool character right he gets more development than most of the other cast I feel like the way that he's written in Jupiter's Circle uh versus what how he's used in Legacy 2 was like terrible like I uh the the interaction that Sean called out where they have that familial confrontation. Very good. But there's so much there that it really makes no fucking sense to me that, like, is not addressed in any way, right? Like, George is there with Sheldon's daughter, who is now his son's partner and the mother of his uh, of his grandchild, right? And, like... Throughout that, where they're talking about Walter and how much he sucks and everything, like, and, and this is across the whole, there's no, there's never a conversation between George and the Utopian about what happened. George has no reaction to the Utopian being murdered. He doesn't even mention it, 
right? Uh, he he doesn't even bring up the fact that Walter orchestrated the murder of two of his, you know, old closest friends. Doesn't that not a factor whatsoever, right? Um, all, all literally all he does is comment on the fact that Sheldon's daughter is hot. <laughs> I so twice e- equally. I found it really frustrating because of the way that they had built him up in Jupiter Circle, where he was like this, like radical. He uh. He was well-intentioned, but went about it in uh, more nefarious means. And then he he ends up being this dude who's like, all right, let's go fucking kick some ass. I'm like, what, where did, where did, sure, it's been whatever, 50 years, but like, where did he- He's the plan guy. Where's the plan? Right. Where did that disappear to? <laughs> and, and, and also, if, if that was the thing, if it was like the plan is we go kick their ass and then he does- <laughs> then that would be something, but he doesn't. He gets fucking immediately clowned out, like, and just dies. And he achieves nothing, and like, literally, the only reason you put him back on the board is so that him and his son can make up. But like, to, I I don't care about that really, like, because it you didn't do enough with it. They have one conversation. And he's like, we should probably hug now, right, son? And then he dies. Okay, great, <laughs> Dad. I loved you. It's another. It's another. Fail. Look at that dichotomy of Utopian being the great, the world's greatest superhero, but Sky Fox was his right hand man, his best friend, and became the world's greatest supervillain. But so, like, it, in- does, it feels like it doesn't go anywhere. Like, what's the point of having these characters with all this history? if you're not going to play on the emotions that come along with that. And also, if Walter can just fucking snap his fingers and kill Sky Fox, and he was so strong and so smart and everything that the whole union couldn't take him out, why did he need Brandon's help to kill Sheldon? Yeah, that was that was something that bothered me a lot. Um, it doesn't make sense. The power scale is not is not clear, and obviously sometimes, you know, uh, you can get nerdy about things like that, but... Um, this is a this is a book that's self-contained, so it doesn't have all those years of history to wrestle with of different power sets and power levels. But here, you know, you you go from one extreme to to nothingness within a few issues, and it's like, wait, why? Like, if he could do that to that guy, why can't he just do that to everybody? Right. Like, why does he even need Brandon? Like, why 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 didn't he do it with his own son? Right. Like, I don't know. Like, any of those things would have made more sense. Like, if you're not even going to use Brandon as a character, why don't you just kill him off in the beginning? Well, I was kind of wondering... Go ahead. I was kind of wondering why he didn't just mind control Brandon. Because Brandon gets out of pocket, um, and he, he kind of, like, works with Brandon to get him to presidency and everything else. Why not just take over his mind like he did um, Sonny? Yeah, right? Like, why? And And the answer is, we have no idea. And also, like... That's another thing where it's like, when, since when does he have the power to just light somebody on fire? That's new. Like, I feel like they, like these characters are as strong and have whatever ever power they need at any given time. As it's convenient. Yeah. And it's like, oh, Sheldon has psychic powers too. Why? Yeah. Like, I, I was, when, like, in the, the first couple issues where they're, like, lifting the boat, I'm like, oh, I thought they just had super strength. But apparently everybody can manipulate things with their, like, mind, sort of, or have some sort of telekinesis. Right. Uh, I, so it's like, why are pow- why are Walter's powers even unique then? Like, 
Couldn't he just mind control Sheldon and get him to kill himself? Like, these are the kinds of, like you said, they're nerdy ass questions. But if the book doesn't even try to answer them, you ask these nerdy ass questions. To be, to be fair, he does say that my brother is the only mind I can't get into. But that aside. But why? Sure, sure. Uh, I, I want to go back to uh, the Jupiter Circle piece and in particular Blue Bolt because I found him to be a really sympathetic character. Um, he was that was one of the best issues. He he was he was somebody who like has what I felt was and he mentions it you know his three personalities and his he basically was three different people and that that kind of stuff always interests me. Um, one, did you guys think that Miller did a good job or Millar did a good job? with his representing his the conflict with his homosexuality it felt historically appropriate yeah yeah i really enjoyed that issue overall i think um he did a good job looking at what that would be like and that's almost assuredly what that would be like i also love the idea it was hoover right uh i i loved i loved the idea that hoover is just looking for an edge over the superheroes, and this is the exact kind of thing that would have worked um, at that time, certainly. And we know historically that that's the kind of thing that the FBI has done in the past, so it felt perfect. Um, I don't know if I needed to see the three panels of Jagger Hoover fucking. That was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? <laughs> I, I did a little research and apparently like this whole thing his whole relationship with I, I went yeah. and read oh, about it yeah, afterwards because yeah, I was same. like is this true yes. like is it it is true yeah it's depending on the source say some say yes yeah. some say no but it was like no, a whole thing with yeah like it's 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 definitely based in some historical yeah, accuracy yeah, yeah. Uh, my dude was a crossdresser too oh oh I feel like that I feel like that's definitely confirmed oh, yeah I read I read that as well um just interesting. Uh, it is interesting how in Circle he leverages like relevant historical. Like, there's a lot of like old golden era Hollywood actors that like have two lines or whatever, like stuff like that, which is cool. Um, but yeah, I think that issue and then the issue about the other guy, um, the Flair Fitz, Flair, yeah, Fitz. I think those were like two of my favorite issues um, as like self-contained just character pieces. I think they work really well. They do a good job of grounding the, you know, the idealist or the idealism that we hold for um, some of the, for some of these heroes. And not, granted, we're not introduced to all of them from the get-go, but it does help to uh, accentuate that these are just people at the end of the day. Sure, they have powers, but they are, they have their their flaws and their vices and their, uh, their struggles. And, and that's a great representation. Yeah, and I like I like how it I like how it um it th- what I liked about Circle so much was that it kind of reminded me of what I kind of think I wanted out of like a Minutemen series from Alan Moore. Ooh. You know, and like obviously we never got that, but I feel like it kind of flirts with that where it's like the whole, you know, what if superheroes were real thing, but like exploring it through the lens of you know, the realities of, like, 1950s culture, right? And, like, the idea that, um, you know, uh, that, like, again, it fits, like, goes through a midlife crisis, right? Like, that's a very human fucking thing to be, like, I'm feeling weird about getting old and, 
you know, I'm going to go screw around on my wife and leave my family, right? Like how many people, how many people do that in the real world? Um, and like kind of, I don't know. I love, I love when you get to play around with some of those things in the world of superheroics and like making the characters feel grounded, but not in the way that that often means, which is just like gritty and like dicks or, you know, like, oh yeah, if superheroes were real, they'd all be sociopaths or whatever. Right. Like it's like, Probably not, right? <laughs> no, they're definitely perverts. They have their underwear outside. They would definitely be perverts. I agree with that, but who isn't? <laughs> I was a little confused uh, about Lady Liberty's sort of issue throughout. Like her, her issue kind of explores the fact that she's alone, but a lot of it kind of um, uh, was about her ability to to sort of connect with somebody and. Um, her inability. Her inability, sorry. Her inability to be able to connect with somebody. Um, I'm, I assumed that that was because of the the era and she's in this male-dominated world. What did you guys feel about her? That's exactly what it was. I, I thought that, but I also had a moment where I actually, and this is my theory, not something I read, where I thought Walter was involved because there was a moment where... Um, She's like talking to uh, Utopian's wife and Jane. she's like Jane and she's like, go just go meet some guy at a bar and have sex. And like they're doing that. And it's when they get to the room that he's like, oh, like, I feel like I shouldn't be here. Like I, whatever. Like it's it like he he like turns on a dime real quick and then like just leaves. You it's, know, it's because of the way that she was, for lack of a better term, manhandling him. She's approaching he him. wanted to be the aggressor and she wasn't she was the aggressor and he wasn't having it. That's that's what that was. I love that issue. Um, I think that it would be very lonely to be a an extremely powerful woman, maybe at any time, but certainly at that time. And I think that Mark does a good job of, of showcasing that and establishing, you know, who she is. She's extremely smart. She's extremely powerful. She knows what she wants out of life and she knows what she has to do to get it. But unfortunately, the world doesn't conform or contort around her the way it does for the men of the story. You know, the other men get whatever they want. Some of them can literally make it happen with their minds. Some of them are just so charming that, you know, girls fall into their lap. Um, but for her, you know, she can't do those things because women aren't allowed to. And not because of rules or laws, just because of how society is. And uh, I really appreciated that, and it made it makes it made it mean so much more when her and Sheldon got together because she was the only one who could have understood how he felt. Uh, because obviously he is, you know, he's one of those men. He can get any woman he wants, but we see that he did that. He got the woman of his dreams, and it didn't work because he was too perfect, um, and he needed someone who could understand what it feels like to be that perfect. Uh, to have basically no flaws, at least as far as the story presents. And, you know, those people need love too. I thought that was tremendous. And I, and again, I want to, I want to, cause, you know, we've, we've bashed the book a lot. I want to say Mark Millar is great at crafting moments that are spectacular. And the moment after he comes back from giving all the children of the world Christmas presents. Oh, that was great. And he cries and she holds him. <sighs> That was it for me. That was it that for was me. really good. Yep, that was really really good. Yeah. Um, while we're on the subject of of circle, uh, 
I, I was critical of um, of the art in in Legacy, but uh, I really, really like Wilfredo Torres's style, and I really like him as a choice for the artist on this book because I think he kind of taps into. Um, we we talked about this with uh, with Spider Shadow recently, where like it it doesn't feel like it's aping that style, but it feels like it's like tapping into the the tone of it, and I feel like this does that for the that golden age, you know, more pulp sci-fi kind of era of comics. He he feels very um, almost Darwin Cook esque in his representation sure. of like the 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 lines are pretty like straight there. Um, cartoony thicker inks or at least thicker lines around characters and outlines which make it feel very emblematic of like 60s covers or, or rather sorry of like 40s covers and things like that I, actually like pivot to the art like um, overall comparing the two it, it seems like you guys like the or definitely weren't as big on the quietly stuff outside of maybe phil um and kale but um torres overall how did you guys feel he he worked uh, with Millar compared to Quietly, I mean, I think what for for what he was for what that you know piece was getting across. I think it was a perfect marriage. But don't get me wrong, I like Frank Quietly is great, and it's in spaces and depending on who's coloring him that I feel like his flaws really stand out. But overall, in terms of composition. In terms of selling a moment, in terms of like all of those types of things, the the technical aspects of telling a story that are important to making a story get over, I think Frank Whiteley is one of the best in the business. Sometimes his characters look a little ghoulish, and that's my problem with him. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, he is absolutely phenomenal. And at that time, when I read this story originally, it was one of the barriers for entry because I think Frank Whiteley works really well when you don't see faces as much so like in um in his run with grant morrison on uh batman and robin um that was it that was when he was with him right uh phil uh, yeah yeah you know a lot of the characters are wearing costumes and their faces are covered up so you don't see the weird like foreheads and the weird you know stuff like that no then, eyebrows right <laughs> But then when he's drawing a character like Professor Pig, who is not, you know, presenting as like human, he gets those elements across really well as well. So because this story is very driven by humans who you can see their faces, sometimes that's weird. Um, but overall, he's a, 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 a very, 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 very talented artist who I love. Um, speaking about uh, Wilfredo over on uh, Jupiter Circle, again, I think... He does a tremendous job with what he's supposed to do. At first, I was like, eh. But as we got deeper and I could tell that, okay, this is a story very rooted in its time. He was perfect for that time. I don't think he would have been the right artist for Legacy. But I think for this, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, It's worth mentioning that um, Quietly also worked on New X-Men and All-Star Superman and stuff like that with Grant. That's well. on New X-Men. Yeah. Um, I, I, I thought the art on Jupiter's, uh, Jupiter's Circle was good. I wouldn't say it was Darwin Cook-esque. Obviously, the character designs were intended that, to be that way. But, um, it, 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 some of the faces are weird there, which is funny because we're talking about Frank Quietly on the other book. 
Uh, I liked it though. It, I, I, I liked the style too. I, I, I thought it, it was, it was, I, it was good. I wouldn't say it was great or anything. Like some of like the attention to detail when you like really focus on some of the pages, like especially like characters in the background and stuff. Uh, there's not a lot of detail, for instance. Uh, I'll, I'll say this though: there's some close-up panels that look really, really nice. We were talking about fits earlier. Uh, it's, I think it's issue three. Uh, there's some really good close-up panels there. Um, and obviously, you guys know how I feel about uh, Quietly's work in in Legacy. I I know some people. Sean mentioned the faces of of characters without masks and stuff. I've heard people liking it to. Uh, he draws characters that have potato faces. They'll say. I think they just look sick. Like, uh, like Me that too, was, but I, in a different way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like literally, yeah, like yeah, in yeah. my in my uh, notes, I wrote like Chloe literally looks sick to me in every panel. Something about he the way he draws faces is really unsettling to me. And I can't articulate it more cleanly than that. But like, there's like a, a a page from the last issue of Legacy that I remember I pulled out where it's right before she gives her speech, and it's a real close up on her face. And if you like, I. If you didn't see her hairline behind, I would I would have assumed that it was a character going through chemotherapy, because she has no hair on her fucking face. I uh, I wanted to call out one panel in particular from uh, Torres's art that like sold beyond him, and it's on if anybody reading volume two, it's on one forty two, uh, but it's of. You know, uh, Utopian just like crying and breaking down. He like grabs his head and he's just distressed. And I'm like, holy shit, this was excellent. And this entire page, I think, is uh, amazing in, in the way that uh, he's able to communicate emotion through the through body movement, through his characters. And I feel like that's something that um, a Nick Darrington kind of does similarly. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed Wilfredo's uh, art. And man, I don't know, Frank Quietly, he's just he does it for me. Like I, I see the face criticism, but it it works well for me. I uh Pete, is this the page you were looking at? That is the one. Uh, yeah. I can't get it. It's not coming in focus. Yeah. But, but like uh, I don't know, man. There's just something there about the the It's the style. Yeah, it's the style. Like the squiggly sort of lines. Um his, his squiggly pencils and inks that I just, I vibe with. At, at first, did not like anything he'd put out. And he grew on me, and I'm a, I'm a stan. Marco, what um what issue is that of Circle that you were just referencing? That's the again? last issue. That's a page six. Pages. Or five of volume two. Yeah, page 117. Five of, of volume two. Volume two of Jupiter's Legacy. Oh, Okay. Sorry. No, I I was talking about the the page with um, the utopian crying. Oh oh oh, uh, uh, that was issue. I, that's number six of Jupiter's Circle two. Yes. Yeah. It's one of the last pages of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's like the second to last page. Yeah. Of Jupiter's Circle volume two. Correct. Yes. Gotcha. Um, don't think he drew that. Oh no. No, nah, issue five is uh, not drawn by him. No, that's issue that six. That one's six. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, because five five was Chris Sprouse uh, and Walden Wong, but six was Wilfredo Torres. Yes. Hmm. 
That's that's what it says at the issue that I'm looking at. Yeah, at the front. Did the did the change in artists in Jupiter Circle uh, bother you guys? Yes, very much so. Because there was a moment where I'm I'm reading through and I'm like, wait a second, this looks different. Hey, wait a second, what just happened? And the the lines became like from from being like these straighter lines to um, they had a little bit more of like a curve and looseness to them, where I feel like they didn't. Uh, um, I'm looking at this page in particular where this one wasn't drawn. This is, um, I think, issue four or three of Jupiter Circle Volume One. So page ninety-two right now, where where I first noticed it because, like, you can see Utopian's like nose is odd. His face structure is odd compared to like the previous scenes we've seen him in um, on Wilfredo's art, it, and I, I caught that and like I did not like it. Yeah, it's not as good. You know, what makes me bug in Jupiter Circle, uh, Utopian looks like fucking Ronald Reagan. And it trips me up every time. <laughs> um, That's all I had to say about that. All right. Well, th- <laughs> cool. Fair enough. Uh, uh, go ahead. I do want to highlight a cool portion in the end of the book is the way uh, Walter dies. Yeah, fuck that guy. Oh, <laughs> that shit slayed. Yeah, that was cool. Um, I really wanted Sky Fox to fucking ice him, but the fact that it was his son, I'm like, all right, that's pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's your legacy. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's the Jupiter's legacy. It's my fucking weapon through your head, Walter. You would have thought he could have just done that at any time. I thought that immediately. I was like, why are you doing it at the start of the battle? <laughs> nine nine years ago, you didn't even need to be in the same room. Just hold it and just be like, all right, Walter's head. Bam, he's dead. Home. Bam, back of my head. War solved, bitch. It's about the moment, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to let your dad die for the dramatic effect. That's right. I also feel like um, things wrap up a little too cleanly at the end there. Um, Yeah, I thought it was kind of weird that like... That that like the people of of America were like, yeah, cool, no big deal. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a massive, massive upheaval. Um, and obviously, like you know, if Millar doesn't want to deal with that, he doesn't have to, I guess. But the fact that they they go to these conferences and there are all these people there just loving it, and there's no thought to talking about how this affects the world that they're fighting for. A little weird. I feel like the book glosses over a lot of little things like that that I would have loved. Like the, the we talked about little how good things. that's little things like the end of the book, um, like how uh, we we talked about how good that scene is between Utopian and, and Lady Liberty, and then it's like fast forward they had kids, and it's like what? Like that's it? That's all we're getting? Okay, I guess we got a whole issue about his first wife who is not really important in the story at all, but that's cool, I guess. Uh, Sean was uh, for the end. Did did uh, did it feel like it was just like a simple regime change, and then everyone just like went along with it? Yeah, it was very tidy. Um, like everyone just kind of gets what they want. Um, everybody's happy. There's there doesn't appear to be anything left on the table. Um, all of a sudden, you know, Lady Liberty is just this, you know, person that everyone's listening to. No one calls out the fact that she, you know, the way she lived her life before and whether or not she's trustworthy, if they couldn't trust her brother, if they couldn't trust Walter. I think those are all things that are really, really, really relevant. And 
maybe that's what's going to happen in the next series. Um, and that's cool, but I just feel like this this should have left you with those questions, not just in your mind, but on the page. Like, will this work? You know, can this work? Do the people want it? Do they believe in them? You know, all those things are relevant. Hmm. No ramifications. Yeah. Yeah. And another little thing that I thought was like a really like she takes him to Mars and kills him with one punch. And it's like, okay, <laughs> so why didn't you fucking do that earlier? Like, if Chloe is so fucking strong, like, where was where was that at any other point in the story? He's strong enough to kill his dad, and she's strong enough to wipe him, wipe his fucking, just clean his clock immediately. Not even a page worth of a fight? Like, nothing? Okay. All right. Before we wrap up, did anyone have anything else art-wise or story-wise just that you guys wanted to call out? For as much negativity as I've had for the book, I'm genuinely very interested to see where it goes. Right? <laughs> yeah, I am. Does anyone else? Um, yeah, I yeah. liked it, so I do. <laughs> I think I, I think for, for me, the reason why I've been negative is because of how much I enjoyed it yeah. despite all of its flaws and what it doesn't do. Uh, I like Mark Millar. This is the only thing I can think of that I've ever read by him that I felt like this about. Uh, at least at least like Kick-Ass 1 I enjoyed. Kick-Ass 2 just felt like too much. But yes. but, but overall, I really, really am a fan of his. And so when I, I came into this expecting, oh man, like, okay, the show showed us what the book is about. I can't wait to see how the book does it better because traditionally the you know the or original version is better and in this case i was just left so underwhelmed because the setup is so amazing and because the art is so good and because the you know there are some moments that are just so incredible it's like damn if this was a 12 issue uh story where every issue is a little bit oversized and he really set out to flesh out all the details and give us the, the 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 bits and pieces that that we've established are lacking. I think this would have been a story for the ages, and I really, really, really want that. Um, and it's just not, but it could have been. That's exactly how I feel, and like I know that I've been very critical of it, but like I said, I sat and read three volumes of it in a day. Obviously, I didn't hate it. Um, that makes it more frustrating, you know. And, and I think you can compare it to other books that some of some of us really love. That I think do this kind of idea, maybe not the same themes, but the same like it's a it's an original superhero story, and we can play with all these pieces that are, don't have you know um, these properties attached to them, right? Like Kale loves Black Hammer, like, and there's how many offshoots of that fleshing out characters and filling in the world and like Invincible is my favorite comic and it does that over the course of 140 some odd issues. Like you can see how much is here and how much there is that that is good and that has a strong foundation, but it feels like, you built this really strong base and then kind of put a house of cards on top of it, you know? And I'm disappointed by that. I am, you know, I, I, I wanted it to be more than the sum of its parts. And I just don't think that it is. Um, that doesn't mean I didn't like it, but it's hard for me to 
it's hard for me to to mask my disappointment because of how close I think I was to loving it versus just being like, yeah, it's pretty good. Phil, Cal? Yeah, I, it was good. I, I'm looking forward to reading Requiem. I um, I don't mind that it uh, is light on the details. I I, um, I feel like it was pretty brisk, you know, and I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, if I had to rate it, you know, it's like a solid seven and a half out of ten, you know. And those felt like closing thoughts. So Pete and and Sean, if you give it a quick rating, sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably give it a seven out of ten as well. So, Maybe yeah, that's fine. Sure, that that will work for me. <laughs> that feels right. I don't right. really like reading comic books, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's popcorn comics. I think um, like I I I I liked it. I think it is a case of it working really um, of that working really really well um, in a way that I uh, both expect from Mark Millar, but also. Um, didn't uh, because a lot of his stuff is very uh, especially his popcorn stuff is very uh, violent and very like Sean said earlier too much uh, but I think I think this uh, hits it hits the right notes um, without without filling in the background it's a guitar solo uh you know it's it is what it is you know that's, that's, that was a great that's analogy a weirdly good analogy <laughs> that, was, like, that was a great you, analogy if you if you if you look at the individual notes they're whatever but if you look at the whole thing like it it works um so yeah i i i like it i i'm actually excited to watch the the show and see what they did with it um i don't i genuinely don't know what to expect from jupiter's requiem but i'll give it a try something i saw that was weird from the solicit was that apparently it it is going to build on information that only exists in the show as well oh about like the island um specifically they yeah they hinted at some of that in the in the comic too so yeah, I, that was my thought. Maybe we'll get some answers about who the aliens are. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'd give it seven and a half, eight. On my end, I think this was... It was fun. Uh, I think I liked it a little bit more before we sort of dissected it. Um, but I think that that's a good... Uh, I think that's a good thing in that like we're we're able to, to see its value, but at the same time, break down the parts that like don't work. Um and uh yeah i mean it, it still it's it's a fun ride i think that for for it to be have gotten its own show and for pe- more people to be reading this i think is a great thing regardless and um i think i'd sit alongside with you guys like a seven seven point five it's solid it's has its flaws but uh it gets the job done and it does it in a way that's at the very least entertaining yeah it's definitely very competent so to everybody listening, thank you guys again for tuning in. Uh, we do this once a month, the last Tuesday of every month. Go check our catalog. Sean has a challenge where he dares you to find a book that we haven't done. And if we haven't, you could probably recommend it in the Discord if you want to join. Sean, do you think that you could up that to a double dog there? Oh. Do you feel that confident about it? 
Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. All right. All right. You heard it here first, folks. Double dog dare y'all, okay? What's up? Fucking get with it. And with that, we are the Commies Pals. See you next time. Take care, guys. Fucking get with it. Can't win.